This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget you can catch me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on Times Radio, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker and on the Times Radio app. Right, coming up on today's episode then, it's three years since Brexit. Hurrah! Luckily it was all settled, we don't need to talk about it again. So, three years on, we're answering your questions. Uh, Times readers put their questions to a panel of Times experts. What's happened? Has it been good, bad, indifferent? When will we finally see the results? Uh, so that's coming up in uh, just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And on a Tuesday, it's... Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. <laughs> Never fails to amuse me, that jingle. Uh, lovely to see you. Danny Finkelstein is here in the studio. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And beaming in from outer space is David Aronovich. Morning, David. Patrick Maguire doesn't like that jingle, and he'd never heard it before. Did you know that when he stood in for you? And he'd heard it for the first time, and he really didn't like it. I thought he was most disrespectful, Matt. I prefer you. Well, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, well, I shall take that up with him. I shall take that up with him. Um, right, I want a history lesson from you both, because you've been around for a long time. Um, <laughs> Danny, is this... Is it true that the royal bed is a traditional... <laughs> That's what you're going to ask us, isn't it? How long has the royal bed tradition gone I'm back? Sure, I bet Danny knows the answer to that. Well, it probably has gone back the royal, to the state, the, the state bed in the House uh, Houses the of Parliament. Bed, yeah. I don't actually know the answer. Oh, well, fine. We'll, we'll, we'll look into that a bit later on. Seen that, yeah. uh, it, Danny, is this 1992 or is it 1997? Yeah, I've seen that uh, that debate, and I think it leaves out of the equation the possibility it could be worse than 1997. Uh, and uh, there, are, there are reasons why you might think it'd be better, so you can uh, advance that. You can say that... Um, that it doesn't feel like the way that it felt when there were crises literally in every news news cycle. I was working for the Conservative Party in that period, and the Conservative Party had been then in power for 18 years rather than 13 years. You can put all those points. But at the same time, in 1997, the economy was actually going quite well, uh, and it's the economy that drives elections. Uh, so there are uh, reasons why, you, why it could be worse than in 1997. I think a 1992 view, looked at myself, is a bit optimistic for... I can see why 
you know, William Hague was arguing this morning that that's the mindset the Conservative Party's yeah. got to get into because if you, what one of the things that happened in the run up to the '97 election is everybody thought they were the party's strategists, so no one would stick to anything because everyone thought they knew better, and uh, maybe they even did um, because the strategy <laughs> certainly didn't work. Um, so the, the the biggest reason for thinking it's not like 1997 is that is that Keir Starmer is not Tony Blair, um, but uh, the biggest thing for thinking it's worse than 1997 is the economy. Um, I certainly think 1992 is optimistic um and i you know if you look at the big issues on which the conservative party could run a negative campaign mm -hmm. against labor as well alongside uh, you think well what's the positive yeah. side of that so in 1997 it was possible to run a campaign that britain's booming don't let labor blow it britain will not be booming um and even that booming bit didn't work um the Conservative Party will not be able to run a campaign, obviously, on the National Health Service, um, and I don't think I don't think even on the strikes. Um, so you're, you're left with thinking this rather sort of thin gruel of woke might work, um, and I, again, it, I don't think it will. So the only thing that the Conservative Party can rely on uh, is something that I think isn't that reliable, which is that Rishi Sunak's, uh, and you know with the public still making up his mind about him, that that falls the right way for the Conservative Party and people think, yeah. well, actually, you know, we could we could keep him. Uh, and I think that's possible. Again, I think it's optimistic given all the other things that are going against the Conservative Party. So this um, William Haig, uh, well, he was on Times Radio making this point, but he also made this point at the, uh, the Checkers Away Day last week where he was also the after-dinner turn, David. And it, in fact, it does feel to me a bit like, you know, you have to say something... Uh, because you, you, you yeah. wouldn't be earning your money as an after-dinner speaker if you turned up and said, no, you are absolutely stuffed. So you need yeah. something. And 1992, when uh, John Major won an unexpected victory, uh, is something. But, you know, we could be, I don't know, 1923, if we want to be. You know, how far back do you need to go looking for uh, examples of um, uh, of people turning it around? And we haven't been in the situation, I don't think, of having had so many prime ministers and a big economic crisis and the public services, you know, the, the, the things, you know, there's no reason that history does need to repeat itself. Not since the state bed was first used <laughs> has there been a situation like uh, like this. I mean, I, I felt very much the same as, as you did, Matt, which is it would have been incredibly impolite for uh, William Hague to go along to checkers and tell them that they were screwed. Um, and there's very little actually that they can do, but he, but 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 his argument about how if we kind of just have the will to win, that will be part of that get us part of the way. It reminds me of when I was a a young liberal communist, and we used to go along to these rallies. Um, and and by and large, you just go out canvassing for the Communist Party, and you get about you know one percent of the vote if that. But everything you still do it. Um, and, and, and the party leaders would say, look, if we just put enough effort in, we just sell enough morning stars. So when I was a student, I used to sell the morning star on the steps of the student union. And the guy from the International Marxist Group, he was selling his paper. And the woman from the International Socialist, she was selling her paper. And in the end, we ended up all selling our papers to each other so that we could get off the steps of the student union and go and have <laughs> breakfast. Um, and, 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 and this and this kind of way of looking at it is known as voluntarism, which is if you just put enough effort in, you just will it enough then in that case, people will see the light. No, 
The problem is people didn't want what we were selling and they don't want what the Conservative Party is selling. That much is so bl blindingly obvious and they're not going to want it, I wouldn't have thought, in two years' time. I mean, uh, when we said, you know, Danny was saying um, uh, maybe there aren't quite such disastrous headlines, I think one should just look at the front page of today's paper. They're all disastrous. Every single headline. It's true. I, I, I would yeah, only... so you've I... got pressure mounts on randomly rude and abrasive rob, parents in limbo over classroom walkouts... Uh, I mean, uh, roses are red, violets are blue, Valentine's bot is here for you. Maybe they can take some <laughs> it looks comfort some, from moon there are, there are There are some aspects of it, as I said, that are worse than 1997 because though, of those economic yeah. headlines. They're, they're, having worked on the 1997 campaign, there's no doubt that there's a little bit more variety in the political coverage. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that's the best that I can say. And I, I wasn't, put, you know, by any means putting an optimistic view of it. That's the best I can say. Um, so I, I, I think the 1992 view is, is optimistic. And I've taken the view that the result could definitely be worse than 1997. There, there, are, there are concrete political science reasons for believing that if you fought, the, you know, the same election next time as you fought then, it would be worse. And I, I think... You know, one one of the things that happened in the in a couple of years, which we haven't, you know, we are now only just reaching before the nineteen ninety seven election, was that a lot of political people worked out um, that Labour was going to win the general election, and you got a defection of all sorts of uh, opinion formers um, who were a lot who begun to align themselves with what they thought was going to happen because no one wants to be the idiot who ends up <laughs> saying, you know, things are all rosy with the Conservatives just before they get forty five yeah. seats. Well, so you, that, that then that then it accelerates it. So uh, I think that we we haven't had that yet, and that also could still come. So that could make the situation worse. Yeah. So I don't rule out uh, an election result worse than 1997. But, but you know, but I would say that it's not as locked in uh, as I felt it was in 1995 um, that, you know, I would be astonished if the Conservative Party uh, got another majority. And if it doesn't get a majority, there will be a, a change of government. It's not out of the question that Labour doesn't get a majority. That's the, that's the way I'd put it. And actually, I wonder whether, the, um, uh, David, the, the, the key question, then whether or not Labour gets a majority is more down to Labour. Uh, there's a, there's a, I thought it was a great line in uh, William Hague's piece. He said, Keir Thomas' team are currently interesting because they are judged to be close to power rather than being close to power because they are judged to be interesting. And there's a big question about, can Keir Starmer turn it up to 11 in the next 18 months? Actually excite the public, reach into places where he's unlikely to, get a little bit of that Blair stardust, which ultimately will make the, probably the difference between being the biggest party and, being, uh, and having a majority. David? Yeah, I mean, uh, all this feels to me like trying desperately to find a way to keep the election, next election, uh, competitive. <laughs> I have to say, uh, but by, partially by kind of reworking history. I mean, it's worth re recalling that at the point when John Major was in the same period in his uh, leadership as Rishi Sunak, the Conservatives were either even uh, level pegging or were ahead in the polls. And right now they're double digit. In fact, they are up to 20 points uh, down in the polls. There just, there just simply doesn't seem to be a point of comparison. Um, and if you also look at the demographics of voting, I mean, if you just look at, uh, I'm not talking about young people, I'm talking about under 50s mm. here uh, uh, and the way in which they vote differentially from people over 65 and so on. It just looks catastrophic to me for for, for the Conservatives. Yeah, and actually, we talked about that the other day that, that they've 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 people keep saying, "Oh, they've lost millennials. They're down ten points, but they're down twenty points with the over 60s. I don't agree. Look, you know, you, yeah, yeah. this is the result of you know 
a, at least a year to 18 months, you know, and people can argue then on the basis of politics, whether it lasted longer than that, of what, you know, any objective person has got to conclude was calamitous leadership. Yeah. You yeah. cannot do, elect, a, you know, get rid of one leader of the uh, um, a country because of the party scandal and various other scandals, um, you know, and, re and a repeated failure to tell the truth and replace them with another one that fell within 44 days and then expect the electorate to carry on trusting you. People vote Conservative... I always believe that one of the reasons people vote Conservative is because they think the Conservative Party will produce quiet, uh, competent government. And if it fails to offer that, it doesn't offer much to people. And and um, I, I think it, you know plainly did fail to offer that and it's extremely difficult yeah, to pull yeah. that back yeah. i think it's the right what he's doing broadly is the right strategy but i don't you know but i think it's just working a small yeah. yeah well it's fascinating now we will we're going to look more at uh which is first hundred days on the show on thursday i suspect we'll return to some of those themes up next though i want to find i want to talk about uh the princess of wales kate uh, she's launched a new campaign uh, but is it dangerously close to dabbling in politics and why you should both blow your own trumpets more uh, stop hiding your lights under bushels. Still joined by Finkovich, Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich. Let's turn our attention to... Well, actually, it's on front of most of the papers today. The Princess of Wales has launched a campaign to highlight the importance of early childhood. And she's got various celebrities signed up the, um, and a video which is going to be shown in cinemas of a sort of claymation baby. And we're all supposed to be thinking about early, early childhood. Um, Fern Cotton, I think, and... Uh, Professor Green, who I don't need, I need to tell you who Professor Green is now. Um, uh, you actually don't. Oh, there we are, very good. Yeah, yeah he's a character from Cluedo. Um, uh, <laughs> should, I mean, on the one hand, this is a nice thing. Who can possibly disagree with early years? But what happens if the next government says we're going to cut early years funding so we can cut taxes? Is she going to man the barricades? Should, I mean, I suppose the royals have got to do something. But uh, is this what she should be doing? Discuss. I don't know. I'm just posing the question. Well, I don't know what exactly um, you know the constituent part of her campaign is, but there's obviously a lot of um, a lot of work that people can do to educate children, which doesn't necessarily depend on the exact level of government spending. Yeah. So I suppose uh, there are things that she can do that aren't directly political, and she's picked something that I suppose isn't that contended at the at the moment. Um, it could slide into politics and she'd have to be careful if it yeah. did, I guess. But I, I would suppose that's also true of their campaigns over mental health. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, my view of it is there are lots of things, um, you know, I, I wrote last week about loneliness, for yeah. example, um, and and human collection and relationships. There are lots of things that human beings can do uh, to improve their lives that are not dependent upon government spending, but people may not realise they should be doing them. And the royal family can... Can, can concentrate in those areas. So I don't suppose that just because you say something's a good thing, that necessarily means you're saying that the government needs to spend X or Y amount of money on it. Yeah. So you can avoid the, that, in that. But I way. suppose if, if at the next election, one party, if Keir Starmer's whole election campaign is predicated on early years reforms, it does uh -huh. then start becoming more political, doesn't it? Well, I, I answer know. that as I answer a lot of things, but is it proposed to do that? I don't <laughs> well, think we don't so. Know. So therefore, we it's not know. a so, so therefore it's not a problem. And yeah, when yeah. it becomes a problem, we'll yeah. come back on your show and talk Very about it. That would be my approach. David, is it a, is it a problem? No, 
<laughs> it's really no problem. It's no problem. I, I think I, it, this is what happens. I think when Matt Chorley gets a bee in his body about something about a question and sort of thing. Oh, I'm going to tease away at this one. I mean, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, well, firstly, this is completely non-contentious. I mean, the overall kind of you know the idea that early years matter. I, mean, I, I suppose there might be somebody on well, the kind of then right it, wing so, of, so it, of the reform that case, party. What's the that, point? Is it just to give us something to do? Because that's the point. Because if it if it's not contentious, then there's no point in doing it, is there? Well, no, 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 no. Some things are worth doing even if they're not contentious. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think we're getting carried away by the nature of our jobs here a bit, uh, uh, Matt. Quite a lot of people do useful work in non-contentious areas. Um, it is pretty kind of pretty consensual. And the question about what to do about it and so on, kind of pushing for things to be done about it, that could conceivably be a bit more contentious, but not really. Uh, both parties or all parties would then say, well, the question is how you then go about something and at which you're doing this in policy terms, at which point, of course, somebody like Kate steps out of the discussion altogether because she won't take part in that bit of the discussion. So she will um, encourage those charities that are doing work in these areas, say warm words about the general proposition, etc., uh, and uh, and pretty much leave it at that, I would guess. Um, uh, but maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she will actually turn around before the next election and say, after looking at the main manifestos, I do think now that the SNP approach towards child <laughs> early childhood is probably the best one, and I only wish we had it across the whole of the united kingdom but i think that's not going to happen well i'm glad i'm glad that we've sorted that out i don't like i have a bee in my bonnet really <laughs> um do you are you both braggers that's the, that's my last apparently we need to cut our self-deprecation in half uh and brag like an american to get ahead at work <laughs> uh do you are you a bragger david um I'm not only I'm not a bragger, I don't think. I also hate them. I absolutely hate it. It's my mother's fault. She was deeply English. Um, and the first, almost the first phrase I can remember from what she said to me when I was little was, don't show off. Oh, Stop yeah. showing off. Which, of course, children shouldn't really be told not to do. But anyway, I mean, what's the point of being a child and not being able to show off a bit? That's what she did. And that's infected my entire kind of approach. So I can't stand braggarts. I can't stand boasting. I won't do it myself. I probably actually don't believe this or not. I may be overstated in opinions, but I don't think I'm overstating in kind of pushing my own case and my own, uh, uh, and my own virtues. I really genuinely loathe it. So anybody bragging around me and boasting around me is likely to do themselves a disservice insofar as I have anything to do with their preferment. They're going to have to hope that I don't. You're almost bragging about your lack of bragging. <laughs> it's a, what, what about you, Daddy? Well, you know, I, I, I definitely catch myself occasionally doing something which which is probably bragging or name dropping or um, sort of in a kind of passive aggressive way uh, saying something that um, isn't self-deprecating let's put it that way um, and I can't decide whether that means that I'm alert to my bragging or uh, whether I'm actually blithe to it I can't really decide <laughs> about that um, I, I, I certainly sort of slightly bridled at the idea that people ought to do more bragging except for one piece of advice which I think data does suggest is correct and that is that that women probably don't um do things like asking for promotions or yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, telling their boss about the things that they've done in order to get pay increases as much as men do so pro probably this advice is better for women who don't brag enough um and not to be encouraged for men who in my experience, do brag quite a lot, and I probably include myself um, in it as much as I, as much as my own um, uh, 
bragging will, will uh, embarrass me immediately after I've done it. It doesn't always <laughs> stop me before. <laughs> yeah, I think we're all, we're all slightly prone to that. Um, it's an interesting point, though, about um, women, David. And that's probably true in journalism and in politics. That there's uh, yeah, a certain think... type of man prone to... To, to a certain type of not hugely talented man yeah. putting himself forward for all sorts of things in a way that women might not. There is a kind of shamelessness which some men can adopt, which is to force people to take them at their own recognizance. It's a kind of, uh, it's a form of narcissism. Um, it's, if I kind of say this thing about myself strongly enough, then you will kind of believe it must be true because I believe it so strongly. And it does attach itself much more to men. All I would say is that by and large, that's really damaging. And, and the idea that women should do it as well as men so that they can both be equally damaging in their, uh, <laughs> in their ridiculous self-claims is, is slightly puzzling. I do uh, slightly problematic. I do entirely take down his point that at certain points in careers, I have also seen women who are reluctant to um, to speak up for themselves in a kind of particular way, or at least to enter into the kind of com ideas competition with the with the kind of self interested vigor that men quite often do it. And so I can see the point he's making. Uh, just fine. You want to talk about planes, David? I just wanted to mark this is the this is the last uh, week in which Boeing has produced a Boeing seven four seven, the jumbo, and I just wanted to say. I remember long after they first came in, the first time I ever got on a jumbo jet, it was one of them and took off on a jumbo. It was one of the most exciting moments of my entire life. The thing was so big, so crazy. Um, I will never forget it. And insofar as we're, I mean, obviously there are quite a few in the sky still, but there won't be any more produced. So I just wanted to kind of oh, yeah. show a tear in my eye for the demise of the 747. <laughs> Danny, any views on the 747? No, I've, I didn't, I'm, I wouldn't even be quite sure which one was which. Um, <laughs> and they always announce, you know, objectively, it must obviously make a difference what kind of jet you're flying in. But I know as long as it goes to my destination, I never... But, uh, you know, but David's right to think these things are a complete miracle, particularly their size and the fact that they can fly. Yeah. If you start that thinking about, really if you start thinking about too much, it's weird. That is really quite... That big metal thing. <laughs> and how did it... Yeah. Quite extraordinary. Lovely stuff. Quite extraordinary, as you both are. I'll brag on your, your, on your behalf. Daniel Finkelstein and David Wadovich there. Of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesfedbox. Up next, we answer your Brexit questions. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Tonight, we are leaving the European Union. This is the dawn of a new era. Tonight, we are leaving the European Union. This is the dawn of a new era. Five, four, three, two, one. Yes, three years ago today, Britain officially left the European Union. So today we're going to answer your questions about what has happened since. We are live on the Times website and on the Times Radio YouTube channel. Uh, if you want to watch along uh, as we answer your questions. Uh, Times subscribers have been sending in uh, your questions through the thetimes.co.uk. And we're joined by a cracking panel who are going to try and uh, pick their way through them. Henry Zeffman is Associate Political Editor of the Times in the, in the studio with me this morning. Nice to see you, Henry. Lovely to see you, Matt. Uh, we've got Maureen Khan, Times Economics Editor. Morning, Maureen. Hello. And live from Brussels, Bruno Waterfield, the Times of Brussels correspondent here as well. Hi, Bruno. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's, uh, oh, it's, like, it's like your vision, this but less fun. Uh, right, uh, let's start with uh, the sort of the big picture question. We've had absolutely loads, uh, it won't surprise you, uh, of people asking, can we judge Brexit to have been a success or a failure? Graham in uh, Alcester, Alcester, says nobody understood the consequences of leaving, only slightly more understand the impact now. What questions should we, the public, be asking politicians to explain whether or not it was a success? Sue in Limington says, has Brexit been positive in any area. And in fact, uh, during this month's Times Radio focus group, we asked uh, swing voters from Chippenham, Southport and Newcastle how they thought Brexit had gone, and this is what they said. I, I think it, yeah. <laughs> it didn't go to plan. Let's say, for example, the price of beans. It was Brexit three years ago that was the problem. Then it became COVID was the problem. And now it's the government's the problem. But it's equally just as rubbish, but we just don't know who to blame anymore. I don't think it's been great. I think a lot of the promises made haven't really come off. And I think people struggle to think of any real positives of why we've left. We're left without a plan and without a strategy. We've lost that many people that went back to a place like Poland and Romania that they're never going to be able to fill, fill the spots. So that was what the focus group said. Henry, this feels like one for you, the, pol the politics. Uh, can we judge it for being a success or failure? And if not, when can we? Or what should, as uh, Graham asked, what should he be asking politicians? Well, I think it is not unreasonable for voters to judge the government against the promises made by Vote Leave, is the truth. Um, and that's a slightly tricky thing to do because Vote Leave will say, ah, oh, well, you know, we weren't the government. Uh, you know, we had Gisela Stewart, who was a Labour MP at the time. And, uh, you know, Boris Johnson was the de facto leader of Vote Leave, but no one had heard of Rishi Sunak in 2016. 
um, although, of course, he was a Leave-supporting Conservative MP. Um, however, um, I do think, though this was not necessarily in the foreground of the Leave campaign, um, that the time frame is complicated. I mean, I think even on, on the Leave campaign's prospectus, you know, they would have seen this as a medium-term, long-term project. Um, and so whether it is fair to judge uh, Brexit um, at the, you know, first general election, which takes place after the UK leaves the EU, um, which is going to come next year, uh, or not is a separate question. But, you know, in reality, um, the government is going to be judged on what has happened since 2016 at the next general election, at least in part. Uh, and we know from the polling, which I'm sure we'll come on to, uh, that most British people don't think they've handled it very well. I suppose the problem is, the, the, because it's very difficult to do things in isolation and have the parallel universe where we didn't leave the EU and therefore establish, well, how much of what's happened, and we'll talk about the economy of the marine in a moment, but how much has happened as a result of the pandemic, how much has happened as a result of uh, the, the, the general state of the nation's finances, how much... Uh, of the result of Brexit was two years of nothing happening or three years of nothing happening under Theresa May. You know, it's really difficult to... Uh, and lost opportunity cost of other things they could have been doing were they not arguing about Brexit. Well, you, you, you heard there that clip from your brilliant focus group uh, with the guest talking about uh, the price of beans and effectively saying that it was hard to disentangle the effects, the economic effects, the inflationary effects of uh, COVID, of Brexit, of you know, I guess, the mini-budget. And I think the same is true politically. I think it is hard for voters, um, it's hard for journalists, to disentangle different things the government has done from the chaos of grappling with the pandemic, from the uh, instability of the Conservative Party, from the chaos of the fact that Boris Johnson was Prime Minister. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that is a tricky thing to do when you are judging the success of Brexit, but was always going to be thus. You know, politics doesn't happen or certain policies, sets of policies don't happen yeah. in an isolation. If the government can't conjure a convincing narrative that the Brexit part of what they've been doing for the last few years has at least been successful, then they're going to lose. Bruno, what's the view in Brussels? Because obviously Brussels want it to have been a failure because they want to show that it was a bad idea Britain leaving. Do they, do they think they've been successful in making it a failure? No, I don't think I don't think they would see it as them making it a failure. Their narrative would be these are consequences of um, Britain leaving. But at the same time, they're realistic. At the same time, they would recognise that many of the consequences or the negative aspects of Brexit aren't simply just to do um, with um, Britain uh, leaving the European um, Union. Many other European countries face similar problems. They face labour shortages, high cost of living. Today, there's a big national demonstration of trade unionists um, here in Brussels because of the labour shortages um, in the care sector. That's hospitals, creches um, and social care, very big sectors uh, here in Belgium where there are labour shortages and, and, and problems uh, in terms of the cost of living. So many of the problems that Britain is having at the moment economically are reproduced um, across Europe, although Europe has, not as the EU, but different governments have responded uh, in different ways, for example, um, with very high levels of, of, of public spending, which goes against the ideology uh, currently of the Treasury um, and the Conservative Party. So it's very hard to disentangle how the government has handled Brexit and the, the, and the economy and the current uh, consequences we see at the moment. I think what the EU would see it as a vindication of is a vindication of um, their very negative views about people like 
Boris Johnson as a charlatan and as a, a chance, and they would point to the current state of Britain and say, this is what you get when you have people like that in charge. I mean, let's come on to the economy, because it, it won't surprise me. Loads of the questions we had touched on the economy. Uh, uh, Beryl says, what effect has Brexit had on our exports to and from the EU? Uh, John says, would the UK have been better off by now with a Brexit based on WTO trade rules? David, what's the approximate value of the trade deals made post-Brexit compared to the uh, the business loss with the EU? Uh, all of these sort of, I think, trying to point to showing that uh, Brexit has been good or bad uh, for the economy. Are you able to in- disentangle that? Is a country that was quite a lot like Britain, which hasn't, which obviously has been through the pandemic and everything else, but hasn't had Brexit that we can sort of use as a comparator? That's actually a very good question. And this is um, an exercise which is done by the excellent John Springford, who works for the Centre for European Reform. And I'd encourage everyone who wants to know about the counterfactual Britain still in the EU, what would have happened to that Britain compared to Britain now. And John does this exercise every six months where he basically composes a phantom version of Britain, which is based on things uh, that other countries similar to Britain are experiencing and then compares it to the UK. He sees... um, that we have had a growth downgrade of about 5%, which is generally in line with the forecast that we already have from people like the um, Office of Budget Responsibility, which say the economy or productivity is about 4 to 5% smaller. And it's important to know that these are sort of, these um, the losses to productivity are something, is something that's already gone and has been crystallized. It's not something necessarily that we're still sort of facing. So these are the sort of the, the lost growth opportunities that have happened because of Brexit. John also finds that we have quite a major investment gap. He thinks it's around 11% compared to when the UK was in the EU and whether it's not out, outside the EU, the sort of counterfactual. And actually one of the more surprising findings is that the impact to trade on goods has been less severe than a lot of people would have predicted. Um, I will have to double check, but I think John figures are somewhere around 7%, which is of a lower intensity than maybe um, the double-digit figures that we would have expected in the case of trade with and services um, trade with the EU had we stayed in the, stayed in the block. So actually, I think economists are now becoming much more creative about actually doing this process of disentangling. They are trying to work out what is the impact of the labour market that has come from the pandemic and that has come from Brexit. That's not always very simple. So for example, if you have as we saw many European Union nationals who left the UK during lockdown, uh, which was a pretty uncertain time, if they then did not come back to the UK, is that an effect of Brexit or is that because of the pandemic? So there are still some complications, but we know that we have a smaller labour market. The trade intensity of the UK as a country is about 15% lower. We do less trade in goods with the EU. We have less EU nationals coming in um, to the European uh, to the UK, which means we have a smaller population relative to what it would have been if we'd stayed in. So. I think economists who are also suffering a little bit from, um, I think, an unwillingness to talk about what the effects of Brexit are. And now three years on, having some data, being able to come up with models which look at the differences of in and out, uh, are coming up with some forecasts and and sort of making the job of of people like me much easier when we talk about the economic impact of Brexit to actually have some empirics to start referring to. Is inter- and on the on the trade deals front, I don't know if it's one for Marina, one for Henry. I know it sort of follows these things from the political angle. At the very beginning, we were told by the likes of David Davis and Liam Fox, we were going to do trade deals. It was going to be a piece of cake, the easiest deals ever struck, the one with the EU and with with other countries. And before you know it, we're we're supposed to be thrilled with sending chocolate biscuits to New Zealand or something. Um, where are we on those trade deals? Have they 
come close to replacing what was there before? The the opportunity of being able to strike our own trade, trade deals, has that outweighed the benefit of being in the EU? Well, in, in simple GDP terms, uh, no, they, they haven't replaced what was there before, I think, although Marine will know much better than me. But, I mean, look, politically, I, I, I think it is simply incontrovertible to say that the sort of boosterish talk of... Uh, Brexiteers in the run-up to Brexit, but also in the aftermath about how easy it would to would be to strike free trade deals, um, ha- has been disproved. And you know, partly they were true that they were disproved about the deal with the EU. I mean, remember that you know that sort of famous David Davis article for Conservative Home before he became Brexit Secretary about how you know the first call the Prime Minister would make after the UK left the EU would be to Angela Merkel about cutting a deal. I mean, you know, so they were wrong. Um, not just about how easy it would be to strike these deals, but also about the mechanics of how the EU in particular would approach them. They had this concept that it would be a sort of bilateral leader-to-leader negotiation with Germany, which they really saw as driving the EU. And of course, in many respects, it does. Um, And they were wrong about that. The other point in which they were completely wrong, um, of course, was America. Uh, We were told repeatedly by uh, successive prime ministers uh, that the UK would strike a rapid free trade deal with America. Um, Theresa May went and held Donald Trump's hand and yet uh, it, it, it got nowhere even under even under Donald Trump, even yeah. with Robert Lighthizer, this Reagan, Reaganite trade negotiator. And it's, it's sure as anything not going to happen under Joe Biden. Um, one of the, uh, on this question, is really interesting on the economy and Maureen and uh, Bruno, you might want to come on to this. Uh, Julian in Durham says, for some Brexit voters, leaving the EU wasn't just about the impact on the UK. It was also intended to harm or perhaps even destroy the EU. My question is, what impact? Uh, what has been the impact of Brexit on the EU? Um, Bruno, is there any sort of countries within, still within the EU? I suspect the ones probably nearest to us. But in terms of being angry that Britain left because of the impact it's had on the economies of EU countries? Well, no, I think the, the, the impact of the UK leaving was always... Uh, more um, political um, EU countries or EU member states, EU governments were pretty happy, but it was so uncomfortable for the Conservatives because that was seen as a salutary lesson uh, to other political parties who, who might play uh, the same, uh, might play the same games. Now, actually, in terms of the EU, Britain's absence is felt by countries like Germany or the Netherlands or the Nordics because the balance has shifted away from pro-market countries to countries uh, or an ally- or camps dominated by France that are more state interventionist, more pro-subsidy, uh, more about fixing markets and letting markets um, work. So political consequences of Britain leaving are very much still felt, but the idea of contagion, the idea that it's going to be a queue at the door of countries uh, wanting to leave, be it uh, Poland, be it uh, the Netherlands or whatever, that's simply yeah. not happening. Having said that, the political discontents within the European Union, and Euroscepticism is still very much alive and well. It's interesting. Maybe if I just jump yeah, in on, yeah, on, on this yeah, point. It, yeah. um, um, it, I think it was very notable that when Liz Truss issued her mini-budget, um, one of the, uh, I think, biggest inadvertent beneficiaries of it was the European Union, because at the same time, only a few weeks earlier, you had a apparently iconoclastic Italian prime minister who was ready to rip up Italy's budget commitments and go full ham on a, on a growth plan that would break... Um, the Eurozone's budget rules, having seen what happened to Liz Truss, um, uh, Georgia Maloney became a very well-behaved adherent to the EU's economic orthodoxy. <laughs> so there's many ironies about what impact. I think the Brussels thinks the repeated mistakes and political misjudgments of the UK's political class 
have had inadvertently uh, in a good sense uh, um, uh, for the European Union by one, just making it very clear what the dangers are of being outside the bloc, uh, being on your own, as it were, and also trying to test the limit and appetite of the markets when you do not have the full trust or the financial um, public um, finance stability that you would need uh, as a big country, something the UK enjoyed for a very long time and has been whittled away because of Brexit. It's interesting. There was, at least there's some benefit of Liz Truss, uh, albeit for the Italians. Still joined by Henry Zeffman, Associate Political Editor of The Times, uh, Maureen Carnes, the Economics Editor, and Bruno Waterfield is the Brussels Correspondent. Uh, right, uh, we've been answering the questions of Times readers. We can now speak to Nick in York. Nick, are you there? Yes, but yes. Uh, nice to be with you on your esteemed panel. Very good. Uh, thank you, Nick. What's your question? Basically, quickly, it's just to do with how free are we of EU regulations so far? Uh, is there any chance that we will actually get rid of most or all of them? Um, in particular, I'm thinking of things like uh, something I'm interested in. There, there was something about alternative health practitioners being more kind of constrained and things like vitamin supplements being um, sort of um, affected, uh, the availability, that kind of thing that was uh, threatened to be um, subsumed in the uh, EU or maybe it already happened. And I'm just wondering how how quickly we're getting rid of that kind of yeah, thing yeah. That it, that's already happened. Thank you for that, Nick. Let me go to, I don't know how Henry's in-depth knowledge of uh, vitamin regulation, but more on the on the broader question, I mean, Richie Sunak, when he ran for the Tory leadership, posed putting EU regulations through a shredder. So where are we on that process? It's going to happen this year. Uh, well, sorry, I don't know about the shredder specifically, but the uh, the repeal of something like 4,000 pieces of remaining EU-derived laws um, are going to be repealed this year, at least under Rishi Sunak's plans. Whether that's actually going to happen um, is another question. Uh, it's going to be a vote in the House of Commons at some point, uh, and we're expecting a rebellion not just from well, not just opposition from the opposition, from Labour, as you'd expect, but also rebellion from Tory MPs. Yeah. Uh, Robert Buckland, who was a noted Remainer, but actually also David Davis, former Brexit secretary, um, because they're saying that just sort of repealing these en masse um, doesn't allow the level of parliamentary scrutiny um, which the sovereignty it was meant to restore. Um, so in, in practice, I think increasingly this idea of repealing almost all these laws by the end of the year is seen in, in some Whitehall departments as a, basically an impossible task. Uh, but look, that's what the government is committed to. So it's absolutely going to be a running theme this year. There you are. So we're, we're, we're making progress, Nick, but exactly how we go about uh, repealing them or just copying and pasting them into it, British law uh, is still to be decided. So, yeah, I'm not sure what's going to happen to your vitamins. <laughs> Uh, anyway, good. Thanks very much for joining us, Dick. Take care. Bye bye. Cheers. Bye bye. Uh, let's talk about. We had loads and loads. The team putting together all the Times readers' questions. So we had loads and loads from people who've got a home in Europe. Told you something about the uh, caliber of Times readers. Uh, Patricia uh, in uh, the north of England says, uh, "Oh no, no." It was D J in fact, Jane in London said, "Why did the UK government? That's probably one for you, Bruno. Why did the UK government not negotiate the same freedom of movement rules for UK citizens that EU citizens enjoy when visiting the UK?" EU citizens can visit the UK for six months without a visa, whereas UK citizens are locked into the 90 to 180 days rule when visiting the EU. And people who had second homes and thought they could go and spend months and months and months there have to keep coming back now, don't they? Is that right? Well, I mean, they've got, they've, they've, under the rules, they've got 90 in 180 days. Now, I guess if you're retired, um, that might be 
a problem for most of us um, in the world of wage labour, then that, that, that would be <laughs> generous to me. It is just a standard rule. I mean, that's how visa arrangements uh, work. The UK uh, has made its own uh, arrangement. That's, that's up to um, the UK. I think it is an area, the whole mobility question also for school trips and musicians that will be and can be uh, revisited under the TCA, under the trade and cooperation agreement. But I think before that happens, um, then the UK has got to sort out the real, or Lance, real boil it has um, with the EU, which is the Nor is Northern Ireland and the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yeah, of course, which, which we haven't uh, uh, touched on that at all. Uh, <laughs> partly because we're trying to focus on the things that actually happened. Uh, let's move on, because uh, I've got uh, only a few more minutes left, and I want to talk about uh, the question of rejoin. Loads and loads saying... Uh, uh, David says, polling suggests all the majority think Brexit has been bad for Britain. Fewer than half would vote to reverse it now. If we were to, re re if we were to rejoin, presumably the EU would offer nothing like the pre-Brexit arrangement. Would we need to join the single market and take on the euro? I suppose well, That's probably another one for you, Bruno. If, if Britain were to rejoin or try to rejoin, we wouldn't get our old terms back. No. Um, Britain's old terms, particularly its derogations, um, very significant ones on VAT, actually, which no one no one ever talks about that Barbara Castle got back in the 70s. Uh, but also in terms of Schengen, that's the, the passport-free travel zone, also in terms particularly um, of the um, euro. Now, all of those derogations are gone. They were historically part of the UK's membership. The UK joined again, rejoined again. It would have to have a very brutal um, renegotiation. The EU is not, uh, UK is not particularly missed from the single market itself, that's the, 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 the customs union and free trade zone that is the um, EU. So it'd be a very nasty, well, very nasty, it'd be a very brutal uh, negotiation. The EU, uh, UK would have to give a lot, probably have to give even more um, on fishing than it gave back in the 1970s, for example, and it would not have those derogations. So Euro membership would become a legal commitment, whether or not the reality of it ever happening would be any closer is moot. But yeah, it'd be, they would be difficult and unpleasant yeah. talks. Um, Marine, from a sort of business perspective, is there any expectation? I mean, if people, because although it's been three years since we officially left, it's been nearly seven since we voted to leave. Is there any sort of business economic expectation of ever rejoining the EU? If people draw a line under that and business adapts actually probably more quickly than politics to, well, this is where we are now and we just need to get on with it. Um, I think business people, CEOs, suffer sometimes from a lot of the delusions that you might see across the wider population about what rejoining means. And also, as, as sort of Bruno gave us a cold, harsh reality of what <laughs> it would mean, I think a lot of business people don't understand that the UK rejoining an EU means the UK paying more into a bigger EU budget, the UK being part of joint borrowing structure, something it's classically resisted and not liked, um, taking part in these big grand leaps of integration, which happened after 2016. Um, a lot of business people, I think, quietly think that Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves, although they are not really putting out too many ambitious claims of what, what they would like to do. I think their secret hope is that Labour Labour's plan is ultimately not to really do anything that would prejudice something that would look like getting back into the single market and customs union in the future. So you may have noticed that Labour don't talk very much about trade deals, because why would you want to prejudice your future, um, re, I, I think, realignment back to the EU by having trade deals with other countries, which might mean changing regulations, etc. So that's probably the only, I think, real, slightly realistic and latent hope that you hear among yeah. business people. Their more immediate concern is the fact that they want people from the European Union back into the UK's labour market to fill jobs that they can't hire domestically. And that's to do with freedom of movement, which is obviously ultimately now is just within the control of the government. I mean, um, are business people or people 
more broadly, wrong to think that Keir Starmer is going to move back towards the EU? Well, look, it's all a spectrum. Would he move back towards the EU? Yes. Would he move back towards the EU by anything like the amount that uh, some people think, are deluding, I think, themselves, that he might? No. Yeah. Uh, I mean, actually, Labour have been very categorical that under a Keir Starmer government, they will not rejoin the single market or the customs union. Whether that might happen a little bit by the back door? Maybe. Although... I mean, on trade, I mean, um, Labour hosted this um, huge, I mean, they were trumpeting it, this huge trade reception with various ambassadors, such as the ambassador to America, uh, Australia, I think, last night, in an attempt to say, look, we actually are going to try and make a sort of mercantilist version of, of Brexit work. I mean, I think there's a case that the politics are moving a little bit faster than Keir Starmer. But if you Keir Starmer going to get Labour back into government, it's going to be uh, the path is by winning back over voters who uh, voted Labour for years and years and years, perhaps went via UKIP, but eventually to the Conservatives in 2019. Um, if Labour wins those voters back, they are going to be incredibly wary about then repelling them again in time for the next yeah, election. Yeah. Um, and so I cannot see a world in which they say, oh, actually, uh, we were just we were just joshing with you. Um, you know, we're getting our EU berets out the door <laughs> uh, and taking us back in. It, it, it's just not It's just not going to happen. It's just funny, Henry. We talked a bit about the economic parallel universe, uh, but we was really good on that, as to what Britain might have looked like economically had we voted to stay in. What would we look like politically? That's a great question. I mean, I think I'm slightly being provocative for the sake of it, but I, I have a, a long-standing theory um, that if Remain had won by 52 to 48, the Conservatives would have then made Boris Johnson leader as the tribune of their members, almost all of whom would have voted to leave the Euro European Union, even on that um, result. Uh, and, of course, Jeremy Corbyn would still have been leader of the Labour Party. And uh, though you wouldn't have had the get Brexit done kind of uh, theme in that election, I think we probably would have ended up with Boris Johnson being prime minister with something like a majority of 80. Um, so perhaps the counterfactual universe might not have been politically quite so different uh, from... Uh, from uh, where we ended up. But it would all have been the same for everyone apart from Theresa May. Oh, yeah, I forgot about her. <laughs> <laughs> Spent three years covering her Brexit and there, negotiations. And there, there summed, up, summed up most of our, uh, our working lives covering Brexit um, in a single sentence. Listen, it's been absolutely fascinating. We had so many questions. Uh, but I hope if we didn't get to yours, uh, that we at least got sort of near them. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.